for the evening message to direct us to the throne of God. We have Elder Brother John Zoig from Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey, and to assist him is Elder Brother Doug Savin from Toronto. Please pray for these brothers as they would divide God's word. Before we have a prayer, I need to announce to you that war has been declared. I can still remember when as a four-year-old, when that was first said in 1941, I don't remember understanding it, except I remember the atmosphere in our home that was very serious and a lot of concern. But the war that has been declared is between the prince of this world and the king of kings, and the battlefield is us, all of us, not just the unconverted, all of us. Let us pray. Lord, we have been called together to this Bible camp to study about the whole spiritual direction that we need to be strong in the Lord. Satan has heard the plans that have been made. He's heard the intent of it. He knows about the theme of it. And he does not want that to happen. But we are thankful that there is one who is greater than he who has promised to gather with us if we gather in thy name. And we do so, O Lord, because to gather in thy name we understand to mean that we would want thy will to be done in our lives as well as thy presence. And so we ask, O Lord, humbly for us to recognize our weakness so that we can become strong in thee and allow the grace that thou hast promised to those who would seek it out to take complete control over our hearts, our minds, our whole being, that the victory that we can experience in Jesus might be total. In thy holy name, dear Jesus, we pray this. Amen. There was no question in my mind what scripture I should use tonight when I had found out that I was asked to serve. And it's to be found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And to put this into context, this is probably more than the second letter that the, Paul had written to the Corinthians. We only have two that have been preserved, and so they've labeled it the second letter to the Corinthian church by Paul. And he had also made a number of visits in, in addition to his initial visit to the church in Corinth. And he had some struggles with this church because of their misunderstanding initially of the seriousness of the plan of salvation and of the holy walk that is to be had in Jesus. And he had struggles even as indicated in this letter. Uh, nevertheless, he loved this church. He loved the individuals and he loved the Lord Jesus who had called him to serve the church. And so he did so with all his heart. And so he writes in these closing chapters, in chapter 12, It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, 
whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth, such an one caught up to the third heaven, and I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth, how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such an one, an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities." For though I would desire to glory, I should not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure." For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasures in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. I am become a fool in glorying. Ye have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended of you. For in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. Truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it wherein ye were inferior to other churches, except it be that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will, be, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. But be it so, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with guile. Did I make a gain of you, any of them that I sent unto you? I desire Titus, and with him I sent a brother. Did Titus make a gain of you? Walk we not in the same spirit? Walk we not in the same steps? Again, think ye that we excuse ourselves unto you? We speak before God in Christ. But we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. For I fear, lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as ye would not, lest there be debates, envyings, wraths, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, tumults, and lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. I've read the entire chapter, but would like to focus especially on verses 9 and 10. And let me read those again. The Lord spoke to Paul. He gave him an answer, not the answer that he wanted. He said, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. 
For when I am weak, then am I strong. If you asked anybody, would you like to be a strong Christian? I'm sure the answer would be, if they had that desire, is absolutely yes. Can you imagine anybody who was asked, would you like to be a weak Christian? That they would answer yes to that question? Of course not. We would all like to be strong in the Lord. Because there is a natural desire that when a person is indeed born again of water and of spirit, he wants to be used of the Lord in a way that has meaning. What does it mean to become a Christian? What does it mean to sustain that first love and have it grow in us, that we might indeed be used as tools in God's hand to please Him and not ourselves? I'd like to have us think a little bit of what kind of foundation, spiritual foundation, the letters of the Apostle Paul were being built upon, because I think often they are misunderstood more often misinterpreted, especially in today's evangelical world. Frequently, there is the thought that salvation is thought as an easy experience of believe and you are saved, and that's sort of the completion of the story, and then we can go on and receive the blessings that God has given us. But if we were to understand what the life of Paul was really like, and how he established even all those things which he was writing in his letters and what he preached upon the teachings of Jesus, which is the foundation of the plan of salvation upon which the Apostle Paul built the additional understandings that would help us to understand more specifically and more perfectly what God's will might be for us, we would have a better grasp of what his purpose was and what is intended by the Holy Spirit for our lives to be. I needed to come to camp this year. I needed to come for me. Not just to be used in preaching or teaching or in counseling, but for my own spiritual growth experience. And in thinking about that, and in especially in reading what the Apostle Paul wrote in these two verses, it hit me all over again, as though I were starting, as it were, almost from the beginning, that if I want to be strong in the Lord, I need to recognize how weak I am and not stop there. Because the Apostle Paul didn't stop there. He didn't stop and say, oh, how weak I am. I can't do anything. I can't be used. I can't do anything about it. But he recognized his weakness as dependence upon the Lord, a conscious recognition that he has to be the strength, and that he will supply what we would need as a result of his grace working through us to be able to be used of him and to be able to grow spiritually. We cannot do it ourselves. We are de as dependent upon the grace of God as believers and as older believers as those who would initially come to him when they would cry out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so I see tonight's focus not just upon those who need to yet be saved because you are yet living in your sinful condition, 
but also for believers, for me, for those of us who are perhaps even older in years, to recognize the need for us to be not caught up in our everyday struggles of life and everyday patterns and not realize how desperate the war is that has been declared between Satan and the King of Kings. He wants us as believers to realize that we could lose our perspective slowly over time of how much we need to depend upon Him as the source of our strength, not just for the breath of life, but to gain an understanding of what really counts in life, where our values should be placed, and how important it is for us to recognize that without Him we can do nothing. The Apostle Paul came to that conclusion. I'm not sure exactly what his thorn in the flesh is that he describes here. Some theologians and commentators have have speculated that based upon um, other scriptures, for example, in one place he says he says that you would have given your very eyes for me uh, as as an evidence of their love that they had for him. And some have speculated maybe he had a sight problem, and maybe that was his problem. And let's speculate and say perhaps it was. And he couldn't quite see as well as he would like to. Maybe he had difficulty in reading. We, we know that uh, he didn't actually pen most of the letters. Sometimes he would sign them. In one place he says, I write this with my own hand. And it's speculated that maybe he wrote that extra large because he couldn't see that well. Perhaps that was the case. It doesn't matter what it is. What's important is that he recognized at the conclusion of his prayer, after asking God, pleading with God three times over, he came to the conclusion that the same conclusion that Jesus did when he said, in effect, not my will, but thy will be done. Because that's why we are here upon this earth. We need to recognize that we have been called to a kingdom, to be part of a kingdom that has first been declared by John the Baptist when he said, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And what should take place to prepare for that? He said, repent in the gospel of Matthew. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the apostle is then, then the, uh, John the Baptist is then followed by Jesus with the very same words when he begins his ministry. If you read just a couple of chapters over in Matthew, where he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Declaring himself as being that king, but more importantly, the opportunity and the invitation to have people to become part of that kingdom that he has come to establish, not just here upon earth alone in our hearts, but that might go on into eternity. And understanding that, we need to recognize that the Apostle Paul, in his foundation of writing his letters, is building it upon what Jesus not only lived as an example and as a sacrifice, but what he also said. And I think that we sometimes gloss over too frequently what Jesus said that needed to be part of those who were to become kingdom dwellers. If I may, if I may go back to one of the first things that Jesus spoke about in Matthew, the fifth chapter. 
commonly known as, as the Sermon on the Mount. Frequently, and most often when people would read this, they would refer to the Beatitudes as these wonderful ideals that we should reach after when it says, blessed are they that do this and blessed are they that do that. But I'd like to draw your attention to where it says in uh, verse 10, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted the prophets be which were before you. We have become too comfortable, and I'm speaking to myself, in America, in the easy, relative ease with which we are able to live. We have become too comfortable with the idea that Christian living is what can God do for me so that I can have a more comfortable and joyful life. And we lose the perspective and the understanding of what the word joy truly means. We get a glimpse of that when we look at the life, not only of Jesus, but of the apostles when they were persecuted in fulfillment of what Jesus had spoken here, and they counted it all joy, the Scriptures tell us in Acts, that they were counted as worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. I know what happens to me when I am criticized, and maybe criticized unjustly. My first inclination is to complain. It's unjust, and I might even tell that to God. Lord, why is this happening to me? And I've lost a degree of perspective. That's why I need to come to camp and to be able to see what does it mean to become a Christian? And so before we invite those who are yet without Christ to become Christians, we want you to know what the Scriptures say about it and recognize that we often, too often, have failed in our example. And I need to confess humbly before all of you that I am one who is now asking an apology for having failed in my example. Because when I suffer, I want to be able to suffer as the apostles did. And to be able to have that perspective that when I'm accused wrongly or if there's a difficulty that comes that I hadn't asked for because of a spiritual principle that Jesus has given us, that I would be willing to do so gladly and have that perspective of rejoicing because I am a member of the kingdom as a result of having repented of my sins and having had faith in the shed blood of Christ and that now I want to live that life that would be sustained by that same grace that would be the evidence of the strength of Christ living through me. First of all, recognizing the weakness of myself. And that I could say with the Apostle Paul, when I am weak, that is, weak in recognition of I cannot do anything, but I am totally dependent upon Him and what He will do through me. This is the strength that I want to have and rejoice in the Lord. What did Jesus say? Did he, did he build this foundation of the kingdom 
and this invitation to the kingdom as, as some easy believism? Or did he say, really, this is what I expect of you? When he writes things, when he says things like, uh, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets were before. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savior, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot, cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto the, all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Have we testified of the truth of the power of Christ resting in us to the degree that we have, brothers and sisters, so that those who are unconverted can see the light that is existing as a result of Christ's power and strength within us. Do they see that light? When Jesus says, Think that I am come to destroy the law and the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth shall pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. We live in a time when... when we need to recognize that it is not by the works of the Old Testament law that we are saved, but that we are saved as a result of faith in the shed blood of Christ and repentance towards God as the apostles taught, but that we also have to recognize that there is a, a, a continuing spiritual principle that is as least as stringent in principle as the Old Testament law. And, and Jesus explains that when he says... Ye have heard, in verse 27, Ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Oh, does Jesus really mean that? Or is he just kidding? Is he serious when he says, This is a spiritual principle that I want to grab a hold of, and that is, I want to have your mind. I want you to have your mind to be a servant to mine. I want you to be submissive to me and my thought patterns. So that when you see a temptation of, of something that you should not be looking at, that you will reach out and cry out, Lord, give me the strength to turn away or to flee if necessary. Or was he just kidding when he said all of that? And says, well... I don't quite mean that and try to interpret it in sort of a looser fa fashion. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that that one of the members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Sounds to me like Jesus is pretty serious. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee for one that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Verse 33, again, ye have heard that it hath been said of them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto thee, unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the king. Thou shalt not swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more of thee than these cometh of evil.
And yet, even amongst some of our own midst, there's a question if this is really necessary to have as part of our doctrinal stand. You have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at, thy law, at the law, take away thy coat. Let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Think about the context in which Jesus said this. It was the law by the Romans that if a person, a Jewish person, were asked to go a mile, that they had to do it. And those who were looking for a king to deliver them from the oppression of the Romans must have been shocked at when he said, go with them two miles. In other words, not only what the Roman law says you have to do, but go above that. Another step. To go the second mile. And frequently we'll take this into, into a, an easier kind of a context. But if we are asked to do something out of obligation, what a blessing it is if we were to do more than what we are asked. Is this a law? Is it a spiritual principle that is above that which was asked in the Old Testament? Is it more difficult? The answer is yes if we try to do it ourselves. But the answer is no if we are totally submissive to the king of kings of whom we claim to be part of his kingdom. About 40 years ago, I was drafted into the army. And I did go as a conscientious objector. I'm thankful that our country still at that time allowed that to take place. I don't know what the future might hold. But one of the principles I've learned while I was in the Army was that one of the reasons for the training that we received, especially a basic training, was to become responsive to commands without question. I used to wonder, why all this marching business? Why did they have us march up and down and, and, and learn to respond to the commands of, of about face and oblique march and, and, and uh, uh, right face, left face, and, and halt and, and forward march so that we would do so as though we were one man? And the reason is simple. When you are in a combat situation, there needs to be not a questioning, but instant response, because delay means certain defeat. But thank God, the one who is giving the commands for us is all-knowing. He knows the evil one's weaknesses. He knows our own. He knows the situation, and so when he re asks us to respond... He wants us to be part of that kingdom that responds without question of Him, of His Word, and His authority. He wants us to do it instantly. And we can't do that if we've become stubborn, or if we've become slow to respond, or if we've become too comfortable and self-centered. 
These are the, 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 the tactics that Satan uses today to defeat those of us who are in the kingdom. I know, because he works that on me. And I need to be more aware, as God has shown me in his word, to be more aware of how responsive I need to be to the king of kings. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Does this sound like the same tone that we hear about the enemies that we might have of our country? Is it politically correct today to be able to say that we should love our enemies? Or are we swayed by the so-called silent majority into thinking sometimes a little bit like they think and lose our focus on what Jesus said needs to be our standard of living as those who would be those who would be part of the kingdom of Christ? But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father, which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do more ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, complete in Christ, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. If I have painted a picture of Christianity to those of you who are yet without Christ that sounds maybe a little less than attractive, I cannot help it because this is what the Word of God says. But it is attractive. To become responsive to a master who knows indeed our very core of our soul and of what is best for us. It is attractive when one is able to back off of your own, our own, I want to include myself, our own little narrow perspective and be able to see a little bit more of the big picture that God has in mind for us as kingdom participants, because he's come to us, establish his kingdom now in our hearts, within those who would repent of their sins and have faith in the shed blood of Christ and appeal to the grace of God to be able to give you the ability to change your heart and your mind about what life is all about. He wants such to be able to gain the joy of being able to Suffer for his sake, recognizing that the ultimate goal is his glorification and our redemption. I marvel when I read in history, especially about the early church, and how they understood the teachings, New Testament teachings. And I know some people don't want to hear about history, but I think it's important for Christians to recognize not only what is written in these scriptures, but how it was understood by the early church. And how they grasped these spiritual principles, how they embraced them. 
to become part of their everyday life. And it enabled them to be able to rejoice even in the midst of persecution, counting themselves as a privileged ones to be worthy of such suffering. To enter the kingdom, I've already mentioned what the apostles had preached. Repent of your sins, repentance towards God, the scriptures tell us in Acts, and faith in Jesus Christ, that is, in his shed blood, and how it atones for our sins. But to be part of the sustained kingdom, we need to continue in the doctrine, regardless of costs. And I know personally what that means through this past year's experiences. We need to endure. The scriptures tell us if we endure, we shall also reign with him. 2 Timothy 2.12 And need to count it all joy to suffer, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Brothers, sisters, and friends, war has been declared. The battlefield is right here in camp. The battlefield is taking place within our souls, within our thought process, within our very beings, both the converted and unconverted. And Jesus wants to win that victory by giving us His power to become His children and to be sustained until the very end, to endure with all joy the sufferings of this present life that we might be able to rejoice with him in eternity. Let's all bow our heads in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, indeed, war has been declared. Not only this evening, but many, many ages ago, where Satan himself was cast out of heaven, And woe unto the inhabitants of the earth, for this is where he has come. And Lord, we pray that every single heart in this room this evening would realize that we have a common enemy, Satan, literally the adversary. And Lord, we pray especially for those that are young for those that believe that strength is indeed in physical power, is in ambition, is in the things that this world calls powerful and awesome. Lord, we have seen, at least I have, growing up, how the how the schoolyard bully soon met his match. And how the strong men of this world have been brought low. And only those that have been equipped with the strength of the Lord have endured, have persevered, and have triumphed. Lord, we've also seen the forefathers, the saints of old, that they have willingly gone to their death for the Lord they have loved, who rejoiced in martyrdom because they saw 
a better end. And Lord, we have heard this evening that joy comes in standing with Jesus, standing in line to suffer, to bear the cross, and even to die upon that cross. We are minded, O Lord, of the saying, the words of thy saint of old who said, The joy of the Lord is my strength. And Lord, we know that this joy is not shallow. It is not a happiness. It is not something that comes from circumstances. But it comes from a deep relationship, a meaningful relationship with thee, the living God, and Jesus, thy son. O Lord, indeed, give us the power. Give us the grace which gives us that power to overcome, to realize and to recognize our enemy, but to know that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Father, all praise, all honor and glory be unto thy name for the words we have heard this evening. And we pray that we may retain them in our heart, that we may not sin against thee. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.